Yes. Do you know anything about him? What, what's his real name? Samuel Clemens. What's he famous for? His, his, uh, his famous books. Tom Sawyer. Okay. Um, what kind of person do you think he was? By, by trade, he's a humorist. So what kind of person do you think he was? Funny guy? Yes, no? You have no opinion? Okay, you don't really care? <laughs> Actually, the guy was a real somber fella. He said in one of his quotes, he said that, I have never greatly envied anybody but the dead. I really envy the dead. It's not from a believer's point of view. You see, when his daughter had reached into her early adulthood, his daughter suffered a severe epileptic seizure and passed away. He never recovered from that shock of losing a child. And as a result, some of his humor is because coming from a skeptic, a skeptic point of view. And here he is, this man who people would say he's a really jovial, funny type of guy because of the things he wrote. He was really more of a morose type of a person. Here's a different person. He's called a man of sorrows, but yet he is talking about how he has such great joy and he wants to give that joy to us and he wants our joy to be overflowing. That message caught a man's heart and, and a man's mission. That man is the Apostle Paul, who when he was in prison, when he suffered all kinds of difficulties, he was able to follow through with what his master had said and he said, you know, I'm going to have a life of joy. I'm going to live above my circumstances and though I will struggle and still have difficulties, I'm going to rejoice and praise the Lord. This shows his commitment. Here's a fellow who had deep, real, in-depth faith. A fellow who is really following through and being, being capable and, and handling with maturity his different battles in his life. So he provides for us a really good example of somebody who had that deep, in-depth, mature type of aspect. But also in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, he provides us an example of not only real devotion and, and real desire, but he shows us real concern for people. He shows us a real compassionate heart. If you start and pick up where we left off this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 20, 21. While you're turning and you're getting there, let me just correct. I said when I prayed for Steve Gibble, ski. Steve Gibble isn't the one. It was Steve Gettle. So I want to clarify so you don't bombard Steve and ask him about different surgeries. It's Gettle's request. My, my misspoke there. Um, Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Here he is. He's writing to these people and he is saying in this text, he is making a comment and he's going to talk about his his concern for other people. We, we pick it up sometimes. We looked at it this morning where he makes the comment. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In verse 21. And then he goes on and he makes some other comments that are very interesting. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet, I'm not sure which I choose. Basically is what he says. So King James, yet what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Here he is. He is serving the Lord. We talked about it this morning, his depth of his commitment for me to live as Christ. And he says, I want to do it in life or death. And then he pauses and he thinks about, okay, which one would be easier? Which one would be better? And he's got this challenge in his life. He's, he wants to be with the Lord. And being with the Lord would be far better, would it not, than what you face? Let me, let me give you a real story. Just in the last 48, 48, 72 hours. When Larry was in his, in his comatose state. Where he was medicated to the point where, okay, he's just sedate enough and he's not able to communicate. He did wake up at one moment. 
And when he woke up, Wanda said, he was kind of upset. He said, I'm still here? <laughs> and it was like, well, yeah, you're, you're in the hospital. You're sick. That's not what I mean. I want to be in heaven. I don't want to be here anymore. Okay, you understand that, don't you? That as a believer, there is that desire. We have that desire. But at the same time, I have a desire to be with the Lord, but I don't want to leave Deb. I want her to go with me. I want Tony and Becky and Shelly and their spouses. Okay, I want all of them to go with me. And Ben, there's another child. Yes, I forgot. Okay. <laughs> I definitely want him to go with us and get him out of Jersey. Um, <laughs> so you have that desire with the, with the family, Yes. And Paul is saying, I really do. I have this strong, strong desire. I really, really, really want to be with the Lord. We understand that. We can relate to that. But he says, you know, when I do that, I can be with Christ. My trials will be ended. But notice his concern where he says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is not more needful for me. It's more needful for who? He says, for you people. He said, I have a greater desire to minister to you and then to be ministered to in the presence of heaven. And he goes on, he says, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for, for me by my coming to you. And so he says, I think it's more needful for me to remain here. I still have a job to do and that's going to help you people out. And so I am willing, life or death, to be whatever, where, be wherever God wants me. But because of your needs, I'm concerned. I am not looking at this just selfishly to get out of here and to be in a place of peace and comfort, with, done with my trials, done with any of my other problems. He said, I know it's more important to be here. So I, I resign myself and say that gladly. I want to serve God. I want to serve your, you people. And so he says, by illustration of that fact alone, he has a concern for others. It's not about him. It's about Christ and serving other people. Deep, deep concern. Shown by the choice he's making. I'm going to stay. But shown also, as you continue in this chapter, by the challenge that he gives. After he makes that comment, he challenges these people. He continues and he writes now with some, some uh, emphasis of saying, now here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. And he tells them several simple things that they should do. And he illustrates these by giving further explanations, starting with verse 26 and following. Let me point out that what he deals with in verse 26 and following is very practical. What he deals with is something not distant, not something far off, like, you know, when you get to be, you know, in your retirement years, for those of us who are still not there. Okay, then you can do this for the Lord. He doesn't do that. He talks about what you should do right now, here and now, right here in this everyday life. When you're in high school, what you can do for the Lord now. When you're in your early years of your family, what you can do for the Lord now. Your early years of your career, right now, what can you do for the Lord? When you're in those middle years, or when you're getting into those seniors. What can you do for the Lord right now? It gets very practical, very pointed about serving the Lord now. There was a fellow by the name of Bill Knox in 33. He did this, did this in Philadelphia. He did it at a number of different places. Philadelphia is the first place he did this. He was a bowler and loved bowling, but he wanted to prove a point. And he wanted to show how you can do spot bowling and it can be very effective. You know what he means by that, right? Okay, you know how when you're at the bowling lanes, you can line up and you can, you can look all the way down the lanes and you can bowl based upon that head pin or one of the others. Or you can do what? You can look on these marks, the arrows right here. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes? No? 
Okay, the ones that are real close. Well, what he did is he had a screen put. Wherever he would do this demonstration, he'd have a screen hung so he couldn't see the, the bowling pins at all. And then he would bowl based upon those different markings, those triangles or whatever they had at that time in the bowling lane, and he would spot bowl. And on several occasions, he would get 300s. And it was all with the idea, and his, his whole idea was just line up things that are close to you instead of taking this far off look. And he would use it to teach the lesson of looking and making real good choices for the things that are near you. Now, I heard a speaker use that illustration years ago, and he said, now, well, that applies to you and me. Sometimes we make decisions about what we're going to do and how we're going to serve and get a strike way down the road. But what we should be doing is working right here. Because if we line up in our everyday life, like on Monday morning, it's going to affect eventually what's going to happen on Friday. So looking at something really close to your life, looking at something very, very practical, here's what Paul tells you and me to do so that we are following through with honoring the Lord to the best of our abilities. Here's the challenge he gives. The challenge for a very simple idea is be consistent. Be consistent in your conduct on Monday. Don't worry about next Friday. Worry about Monday, being consistent on Monday. And then Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Watch how he says it in this text about consistency. He says in verse 26, that your rejoicing may be born abundant. I'm in verse 27, excuse me. And let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ. The original language that he's using, Greek, he mentions when he says conversation, he uses a political term. The political term is basically citizenship. He is saying, and let your citizenship, let the way you conduct yourself, the way you live, how you function within the realm around you, literally let it be, as he says, acting like the citizen of where you belong. Now this would click with those people, using the term. Because the Philippians, unlike many of the Greek cities, they enjoyed a unique citizenship. They were a city, one of the few in Greece, that were given Roman citizenship. The reason that it was is, one, they had been founded and rebuilt not founded, but rebuilt and become a population center because many of the veterans from the Roman army moved there. And their reward in retirement was they became citizens of the country of Rome or the empire of Rome. Also, when there was a division between the different heads after Julius Caesar was assassinated and there was the division in the kingdom, the Philippians, they sided with the winning team. They sided with Octavia, who later became Caesar Augustus. They sided with his army. And as a result, after he defeated Brutus and the others who had been involved in the assassination, he rewarded them with even more honorary citizenships on top of the other people of that city. So they were people who were proud of the fact that they were citizens of Rome. They had that special honor much more than many of the other people around them. Well, Paul, writing to these people who he know, knew that this would be something sweet, this would be something they were proud of, he used that term. He says and reminds them, you are citizens not only of Rome, but you have a citizen within the gospel, within the kingdom of God. And he says, now you need to act like citizens of the kingdom of God. Do you ever do this with your children? Do you ever tell the older ones that they need to be a good what to the younger ones? A good example to the younger ones. And you say, okay, you've got to show them how to sit in church. You've got to show them how to obey. You've got to show them, and you make it very simple that they have a responsibility to act their age, to act like they, they know what's the required and to respond to being a citizen within your family and they're going to teach the others. Well, that's what Paul is writing to these people. He says, I want you to show to other people what a citizen who is living worthy of the gospel is like. And that's the next statement. He says, okay, now we want you to 
live in a way that becomes or is in agreement with the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. That you are truly pointing out this is a true Christian. This is what a gospel believer, how he acts, how he conducts himself. And he's telling them, he says, I want you to do this. Let your conduct agree with the message of Jesus Christ. Let it be done. And he's talking to them in the idea of he's, he wants us to do this all the time. And he says, this is the challenge for you and me. No matter who is around, no matter what I'm talking about, look what he says. He says, let your citizenship become, or your conduct become as the gospel or consistent with the gospel, that whether I am come and see you, or whether I be absent, he says, I may hear of your affairs. That you are following through with this. And so he's saying, okay, whether I'm there, do this all the time. Do this on Monday. Act like a Christian should act whether or not there is a co- there is a other church member there with you. Act that way. When you're at school, act like a Christian should act whether or not a pastor Art is there or a pastor Tony is there. You act that way because this is what's important. You're supposed to be doing this to honor the Lord. This is challenging. But the fact is, we are the only Bible that many people will read. How we act, how we treat our families, how you interact in the backyard, how there is conduct with siblings, how mom and dad respond to each other when you're doing a project in the backyard and your neighbors are watching you work together. And you say, oh, wait a minute, people don't watch. They do. They do. And how do you act towards each other? How do you, how do you respond when something doesn't go right? How do, you, how do you speak? I think that what he's challenging me and you to do is consider every facet of our life. Not just what we do at church, but what do we do at school? What do we do at work? How do we live? Do we, do we say words that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That means there's no room for the filthy words, the cuss words. There's no room for the dirty stories. How do we respond when things don't go right? Well, to be consistent with Scripture, we're not supposed to get mad and throw things. We're not supposed to have a tantrum. When somebody doesn't, we were, we were driving back from seeing new grandbaby. We're driving back, and I was pulled, we were going down the highway. Traffic was moving. Cars were trying to merge. And as they were trying to merge, there was one guy who was trying to speed up, and there wasn't much room be- before or behind me, but he definitely wanted to get in, and I was in the right lane. I couldn't move over. There was a semi in f- right next to me. And so I just kept on with the flow of traffic. He has, he's, in my mind, he's supposed to yield as he merges. Is that correct? Okay, and so he didn't, he got really mad and he squeezed in between the car right behind me and he immediately puts on his brights and, you know, Deb said, wow, that got bright. So I turned my mirror because I couldn't see anything. So I just turned it so that the mirror went more straight. It wasn't in my eyes. I think the mirror must have then reflected back towards him. So the guy, the first chance he got, he pulled next to me and you know when you're driving and you're not looking sideways, but you know, they're there and I'm sure he was waving waving at me with different gestures, okay? And my wife said, I think he wants your attention. He's not getting it. I'm just driving straight. <laughs> and so I wasn't responding to him, so he swung into my lane to push me off the road in the middle of this traffic. You know, so in his road rage, he was trying to get even for something that I had apparently done to him um, in that sense. I, I got to tell you, my first thought wasn't, that's the way a Christian should act. That's not the way a Christian should act when things don't go right, Right? To strike back, to seek revenge. Now, he didn't have any bumper sticker that said, honk if you love Jesus. But have you ever seen that? Okay, that's not what we should be doing. 
We should be different. We should be living up to a standard of gospel holiness, forgiveness, love, purity of speech, purity of conduct. Which means I don't have to tell the same risque stories or comments just to fit into a crowd. In fact, that's unbecoming of a Christian. I don't have to get involved with those conversations that husbands do at times of tearing down and busting on wives. That's unbecoming of a Christian. Unbecoming of a Christian is the Christian woman, wife, who's just getting in with the others and just really busting and carrying on about the husband and making fun and mocking. That's unbecoming of a Christian. It's unbecoming of a Christian teen to be disrespectful and talk about the old man and the old lady, even with those terms. That's unbecoming of a Christian. It's unbecoming of a Christian to say, okay, to fit in the crowd, I got to drink a little. I got to smoke a little. That's unbecoming. We don't need to do that. And Paul says, hey, I want you, whether I'm present or absent, I want you to live a consistent life, consistent with the gospel, with the message of God is wanting us to follow him no matter what. So he gives a very simple, very, very pointed challenge. Be consistent. That is something I can do on Monday morning. That is something you can do Tuesday, Wednesday, that we can live tomorrow. Be consistent in what we do. He gives a second challenge here. Okay, And I'm going to tie in with the, some of his comments and break into some of the verbiage where he says, okay, I want to hear about you, and here's what I want to hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what it strikes me is he's saying, I want you to work together. I want you to stand fast with one another. I don't want you to, to bail out on one another. I don't want you to give up on the gospel, on the message that you have. Several years ago, and I told you this before that, when the kids were young, we did a vacation. We did one of those family vacations that we took the relatives with us, meaning Deb's parents. We took them with us, and, and it was an interesting vacation having... You know, my, my six and her parents in one small van that we were driving across. We decided to go out there for vacation. And then we would spend three or four days. We would drive across South Dakota. And there's nothing in South Dakota. But we would drive across in the middle of the summer. And our air conditioner wasn't working. And we would drive across and we'd go to the Black Hills, spend a couple days and come back. And we would see a site because all children need to see, you know, Mount Rushmore and those different things. So we did this. <sighs> Do you ever have one of those vacations you're glad it's over with? Okay. You said the same thing, did you not? I'm not telling something out of school, am I? Okay. We, uh, we love her parents dearly. We loved them more when the vacation was done. Okay. Just to suffice it. So we're driving along and it was getting to the point that everybody was getting on everybody's nerves because, again, you know, grandparents don't, and I'm guilty of this, grandparents don't always think that the kid's jumping around the car. And by the way, back in those days, the kids weren't seatbelted all the time, right? And so they would argue about the different things, whose window was whose, who's breathing, whose air. And you couldn't say, just be quiet, stay strapped. They would be moving all over. And, um, and actually, the problem was, I had the front seat. That wasn't a problem. Deb had the front seat. Her parents had the captain's chairs. And that one bench in the back, four kids were in that one bench. Okay, so that wasn't working. It's hot. The air wasn't getting there. I decided that we needed a break from each other. So we stopped on the side of the road. We got out, and Deb said, you've got to be careful because you know, we're out in the middle of this desert area. There could be snakes and different things like that. Don't worry. It's better to be with snakes than in the car right now. So we get out, and we're out there, and we're doing some exploring. We're going to get hot and sweaty, but I don't care. 
Okay, it'll relieve the tension. So we're out there and we decided to go down this one embankment. When we went down the embankment, now the stones there in South Dakota, it's real, it's real pebbly like. And so you don't have to, you know, work real hard to get down because you kind of just slide down. So I had the four kids and we kind of slid all the way down to the bottom of this ravine, which was fine. But I don't think you were walking with us. Um, so we slid down the ravine and then after a while it was time to get back up. That was the problem. How do you get, and two of them were, were real little, and it's like, okay, how do we get up this embankment? Every time we went up, we would slide back down a little bit. So you go up and you'd slide right back down. And so we were going and going and all of a sudden the kids, you know, they stopped and Becky said, Dad, I hear something. I said, what did you hear? She said, shh, shh, we heard something. Shh, shh. And we heard this rattling sound from a bush. We had no problem getting up that, the rest of that hill. Okay, we were up really quick. We just grabbed, we, we grabbed one another and we just got out of there. We, you know, we hauled as quick as we could. Why? We weren't standing fast at that bush anymore. We were standing together, but we weren't staying at that spot. We did just what Paul is saying. We moved away from something that we thought was dangerous. Well, he says, I got something that's not dangerous. I got the gospel. I don't want you to move from that. I want you to stay together. I want you to huddle together. And what we did getting up that embankment, we helped each other. That's what he's calling them to do. In fact, he says, I want you to stand fast, being loyal with one another, and have one spirit. That is, be united. Be determined that you're going to work together with one mind. He says, striving together. The word striving comes from athletics. It's the idea of being in the gym and working really hard. It's the idea of those who are like a sports team. There they are, the entire offensive line. They have got to work together or they're not going to be able to be successful. The team has to work together. You're playing baseball. Okay, so the pitcher is working hard. The first and second, third baseman are working hard. The outfielders, but the catcher doesn't really want to catch. Does that work? Not at all. You're not going to win. And so he says, I want you to work together as a team. And what are we working for? For the faith of the gospel. The word the faith is, has the article before, it is the teachings of the gospel. It is the idea. It is the, the disciplines, the, the concept, the message. And he says, here's what you and I are supposed to do. We're supposed to be companions working together for the promotion of the gospel. Getting it out. Teaching it to one another. Striving hard. Building one another up. When we see trouble, we grab and we help each other get up an embankment that we normally would slip down. We're supposed to stand. We're supposed to be secure and strive together. We're supposed to be laboring. For the sake of the gospel, we're not supposed to be divided. For the sake of the gospel, we're supposed to be working together for witnessing. For the sake of the gospel, we're supposed to be praying for each other. We're supposed to be holding up your witness, my witness, the individuals we're talking to, the families that we will run into, the relatives this weekend. We're supposed to be lifting them up. We're not supposed to be involved with petty squabbles. We're not supposed to be, be veering off into getting my way or getting my, you know, my recognition. Rather, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be getting that gospel out. I will never understand this aspect. I just don't. I don't understand kids who go to Christian colleges. And then come home and in front of lost people bust on the rules of the school. I'll never understand that. Because what you've just done is diminish that institution's respect in front of lost people who already wonder why you're going to that school. And then you're standing at home, you're at home and you're talking about silly rules. By the way, does the army have a lot of rules? Yeah. Okay. Everywhere. Do some businesses have rules for attire and different things? It's a part of life. 
So you go down there, you go, or go over there, or go up there, you go to a school, and then you come home, and you bust on it in front of. I, I, see, I don't understand this part. I don't understand coming home and busting on your Christian's colleges in front of the seniors and the juniors who are debating whether they should go to a Christian school. That just diminishes the benefit of the Christian institution that they could, could be great benefit. And then much less going to unsage people and making your remarks. Keep them to yourself. You think that they have dumb rules. They probably do. But you signed a paper that said you would abide by it. And you're going to run into dumb rules everywhere else. But for the sake of the gospel, be quiet. For the sake of the gospel. You know, if you're in a church, I don't understand this either. Why would you complain about a church to lost people who are unchurched? Does that make sense? The lost people, what will they think about the church? That preaches the gospel, what will they think about it? It's not good. It'll just diminish the gospel. Am I saying that we should never have an opinion about what happens in church? I'm not saying that. Am I saying that you shouldn't ever find fault? You're going to. You're going to find fault in this church because I'm here. Oh, by the way, you're going to find fault in this church because we're all here, okay? Because we are all sinners. Okay, but to unload to lost people, what does that do for the gospel? How does that help them to get saved? When you say, oh, by the way, the church that I've just been complaining, the Christian people that I fellowship with and telling you how bad they are, you should come and have their fellowship. Really? They're going to buy that? You see, you and I need to be thoughtful of saying, okay, now wait a minute. When, I am, when I'm speaking about you, when I'm speaking about us, when I'm speaking about other believers, I've got to be careful what I say and where I say it. Why? Because they are to be my comrades in arms. I don't have to agree with them. I may not agree with all the... I don't agree with all the different Christians and how they do things. But if I have a problem with what they do, I'm supposed to talk to them. Especially not to the world, not to the lost. Oh my. Think it through. You and I are to be comrades in working together to get out the gospel. So I am not going to come and talk to your relatives and complain about you to your relatives, one, they'd be upset with me. Two, they'd be upset with the gospel. That would just diminish the gospel. And we can't afford that. We've got to remove every obstacle we can before the loss so they can get born again. And so you and I got to think this through, that we are supposed to be working together, being consistent in our conduct, being cooperative with our companions in the faith. There's a third area that is very practical, an area that's like that spot bowling. It's right here. It isn't something off in the distance. Consistency is Monday morning. Being cooperative and not busting on one another. That's tonight when you leave here. That's tomorrow. That's in the discussion in the car. That's how practical this is. That's how close it is. Is that we've got to be cautious. Got to be careful. Number three, a third area is this. Be courageous in your commitment. Be courageous. We talked about commitment this morning. But he adds to, after he makes the comment, he says, here's what I want to hear about you as well. In verse 28, and in nothing you are terrified by your adversaries. And in nothing being terrified by your adversaries. What's he mean by that? Well, what's he pointing out is this. He is saying that we believers will have difficulties. It's going to happen. 
Sometimes we bring them on ourselves by foolishness. Talk about a foolish situation of getting yourself into a bad situation. There's a game between UCLA and Michigan State. The score is 14-14. They're getting down to the last seconds of the game. The coach sends in the field goal kicker. The field goal kicker goes in and he lines up and he's got, this is it. This is the win or the tie. It's very important. And he kicks the ball. It goes through the goal post and Michigan State pulls an upset. He runs off the field and the coach is delighted, pats him on the back. He says, hey, I noticed something. That after you kicked the ball, you didn't look up and follow the trajectory, that word, trajectory. Yeah, the path of the ball. Okay, he said, I noticed you didn't do that. And he said, well, I couldn't see it. What? He said, I left my contacts in the locker room. I couldn't see the goalpost, so I never looked up. Okay, now, who brought that upon himself? He did, okay? Sometimes we do those things. We forget those things and we just get lucky. We eke out something. But there are other times, and that's what he's talking about in this text. He's talking about difficulties and stuff that is done. It usually comes from outside. It comes from outside of us. And he's saying your adversaries could terrify you. It's interesting what his next few comments are about these people. The adversaries, he says, they, are going, they could terrify you. And they're going to do this stuff because it's an evident token of their perdition. What's he mean by that? He's talking about unsaved people. He's talking about people who are opposed to the gospel. They are antagonistic to the gospel. The adversaries. He says, don't be afraid of them. What they're doing is they're just showing what they're made of. He says they're enemies of the gospel. They're individuals who inside, they, have, they still haven't been forgiven. They're operating on a sin nature basis. That's their criteria. They hate the truth. And so they're going to create a problem. And this is an evident token, a legal document that you present in court. Their opposition to the gospel just proves they're lost. It is the proof that they are not born again. That they haven't been saved. So when they come and they preach a false gospel. When they come and they they oppose what you're doing for the work of the Lord. They give you a problem because they say, you are, you, here you are. You're trying to live for the Lord. You're trying to read your Bible. And they attack you. And they say, you can't believe the Bible. It's it's not that that they are... They're going to jump on the bandwagon. They, they just expect it. Just know they're going to give you opposition because they're adversaries to the gospel. It's just an evidence of their inner nature that they don't understand. He goes on. He says, by the way, this problem of this, this opposition, which is to them, though your adversaries, a token or a proof of their perdition, but to you of salvation, it is proof that you are born again. Having difficulties, having conflict, having some opposition, it just proves you're saved. How do we know that? What do we mean by that? Because Jesus Christ said these words. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He went on. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But he says, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. He goes on. Remember, the servant's not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So what's he mean by all this? He says, it is given to you and me to suffer for the sake of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord suffered. When we signed up for being born again in the family of God, in the fine print it was, we were going to have trials. We were going to have attacks. We were going to have opposition. It is just simple proof that we are born again. That we are part of the family of God when people would attack, when opposition would come. Don't let it terrify you. Don't let it discourage you. Be courageous in your commitment. Because this is the part of the spiritual way that it works. 
Evil people, unsaved people will give you opposition to what you believe. But you need to be courageous so you can present the truth to them so they might be convicted by your life, by your consistency. They can see by your love with companionship and working together that you are different and they may be drawn to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he says, hey, difficulties will happen. They're going to happen. But I want you to remember that these can be handled. And watch what he does. After he's made the comment, he says... These tokens, these difficulties, these challenges are proof of that they're not saved and proved you are. For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer. Okay, that's a part of what God has called you to. And then he goes, having seen the same, affl- same conflict or having the same conflict which you saw in me. He's using past tense. He's saying this was the way, what you knew I was going through. You saw how I handled it. You saw the difficulties I faced. And he gives, he could give, an entire litany, a biography of how when he went to Rome, or went to Jerusalem to worship and to share the word, he was there. People accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. He was arrested. He went on trial. The Jewish leadership, they said that we are going to fast and we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. So here Paul is. His life is threatened. He has to plea so to be heard in Rome. He is shipped to Rome. En route to Rome, he is shipwrecked. Almost everybody's life is going to be lost, but by God's grace, they are all spared. They get to the isle. When they get to the island, he's bitten by a poisonous serpent. The people on the island say, surely he's a... He, he deserves something, something bad. He's done something bad because this poisonous asp or snake has bitten him. He's going to die and the gods are going to kill him one way or the other since he escaped the ocean. But he doesn't die. Instead, he has the opportunity to share the gospel. And then he makes it to Rome. He's under house arrest. He talks about how he's there under affliction, but he knows how to be thankful when he is hungry, when he is abased, or when he is lifted up. Paul knew how to handle trials. And he says, listen, folk, You can be courageous in commitment. And I know you can do this. I've done it. And you're just as good as I am. You guys can do it. You can handle the challenges. You can handle the attacks. You can handle the opposition. I'm doing it. You can do the same thing. And by example, he says, you saw me do this. You can do it. And you can do it well. You can honor. And so he remained courageous. But he not only says what you saw in me in the past, but what he says in the end of verse 30, what you see happening to me right now. Right now, I'm sitting in jail. I'm writing to you, but I'm still going to remain courageous. You and I can handle the problems. We can, we can overcome. We can, we can follow through. We don't have to give up. And by his own example, he is saying to you and to me, trials and troubles and opposition can be handled for the glory of Jesus Christ. It can be done. Here's the question that we have for you and me. Something real close. Are you and I courageous when we face pressure to change, to give in, to change the truth? Are we courageous when we are facing pressure from work to give up your integrity, your Christian faith, Are you courageous when at school you're challenged and you're not supposed to take a stand for Christ, but you're supposed to go with the flow of everybody else in class that believes that, you know, gay marriages are okay, believes abortion is okay, that you get the pressure that, you know, is Jesus really divine? How are you going to stand at school, at work, at play? What are you going to do when you have the opposition Do you remain loyal to Jesus Christ in your speech? Or do you take him out of your vocabulary? You don't talk about him on Monday through Friday at work because they might belittle you. He is removed from from any type of of, 
um, verses on your desk, you'd get rid of them because somebody might mock you. You, you get that Bible and you hide it deep. When you go to prayer at lunch, you aren't gonna, you're, you're just gonna, you're gonna pretend something fell, so you bow your head. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be strong and courageous and say, yes, I pray. Is there something wrong with prayer? When they mock and they ridicule. Do you falter and fudge in your obedience because some relatives mock you for wanting to be baptized? You, you, know, you were baptized as a baby. You're, it's a slap in our face with you when you want to get baptized as an adult. But that's what the word says. Are you going to be an individual that you hide your faith? You're not going to talk about it. You're not going to share it because somebody might be upset. Do you give in to the pressure of the locker room talk? Do you give in to the pressure of the busting on other people talk? Do you give in to the pressure of, of cheating or lying just because you, you don't want to rock the boat and to show that you are righteous? He says, be courageous. Be courageous in your everyday life. Stand for what's right. Do what's right. Speak what's right. And God will honor that. And he's writing to a group of people that are believers for a number of years, but they still need this challenge. And he's saying, you can do this. You can handle trials, but you need to be courageous. And what he does is he makes it very simple. There's things that are real close to us, and we have to not worry about next week or next year, but just today, tomorrow. There's a there's a newsman that several of you know and probably remember. Some of us, I don't remember all of his details, but I understand he was an award winner for one of the major networks, Sever Ryder, however you say it. He was interviewed at, towards the end of his career. And when they were interviewing, they asked him, what is the, in all your interviews and your interaction with world dignitaries, what is the greatest lesson you learned? Is there one that stands out? He says, absolutely. But it didn't come from my work. It came from my military experiences. And then he relayed that in World War II, he was in a plane. This plane was flying over the Burma area. And as they were flying over the jungle area, they were struck. And the plane was damaged. It was going to go down. And he and the others in the plane, they had to bail out, parachute out. They landed in this jungle that was on the, on the border of Burma, India. And when they landed there, it was monsoon season, hot jungle. They weren't prepared for it. He said when they got there, they knew immediately after they gathered and there was a few of them left. They gathered together and they realized there's not going to be somebody come and rescue us. If they send a relief group, they're not going to get here for weeks. We are in the terrain and we're about 140, 150 miles from our nearest base. And so we need to make that. But between us, there's rivers, there's a couple mountains, it's all jungle, it's hot, there's bugs, there's all the jungle stuff, there's the monsoon rains. And they decide they have to walk out. He said that within the first day of walking, one of the nails in his boots went up into his foot. So he got infected. He had the blisters the size of a 50 cent piece. And at the end of that first day, he and all of his companions were sitting there and they were saying, how are we going to walk out of here this 140, 150 miles. How are we going to make it? And they knew in their minds they couldn't walk that entire distance. They just couldn't do it. But then they talked amongst themselves and they said, we can't do all 140. All we can worry about is, here's his principle. He says the principle of the next mile. I don't worry about all of it. I just worry about the next mile. And he says for the, for the, next, the next weeks, he says it was just the next mile. The next village, the next farm where we could get some food, the next until we made it all the way. But we had to learn. He said the life principle was the next mile, just tomorrow. 
get through tomorrow, live for tomorrow. Isn't that the way it is in the Christian life? You and I in our Christian life this week, we need to work on being consistent Monday. Not worry about consistency on Saturday, Monday. Courageous on Monday. Cooperative with others on Monday. Let's get through tonight. Let's get through tomorrow. And then let's restart the process. And then let's, okay, I want to be compassionate. I want to be committed. I want to be courageous. We'll work on that Tuesday. And then we'll work on it again Wednesday if the Lord gives us Wednesday. If he doesn't give us Wednesday, we're better off, aren't we? Because he'll have come back. So it's just one day at a time. One hour at a time. But you have to ask yourself, am I one hour? This day, as I reflect from this morning, have I been consistent? Have I been cooperative, compassionate towards companions? Have I been courageous? It was probably easier for all of us today because we spent a lot of time here. It's going to be more difficult tomorrow. It's going to be real difficult for some of us on Thursday when you're with relatives and friends who don't believe. But we'll worry about Thursday when we get to Thursday. Right now, it's what is my attitude right now? What is my commitment right now? Father, I pray, help me and help my friends to have the right attitude, the right commitment, the right compassion, the right courage to do what's right. I pray that you would help us day in and day out to live for you with consistency, with loyalty, with courage. Help us to be good witnesses this week. Help us to be good speakers. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be forgiving. Help us to be honest and upright. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to portray the truths of Jesus Christ by the way we live with one another and in front of others. Thank you so much for Paul's example. Help us to follow through with what he portrays as he's learned from Christ and help us to make a difference in the world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.